Hey folks, this episode on the past and future of the D&D Open Gaming License was a bit long, so we decided to cut it into two parts. The conversation is worthwhile because the decisions made for the OGL and One D&D will have the power to shape the tabletop RPG industry for the next decade. Please enjoy this part one, history and fundamentals of the D&D Open Gaming License and the system reference document. Welcome to the RPGBot.Masterclass. I'm Randall James, and with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And also Ash Eli. Hail and well met, travelers. And tonight we have two special guests with us. Uh, welcome back to the show, Alex Kammer. Hello, everyone. Thank you. And Mark Greenberg. Good to be here. All right, Tyler, what is happening? Well, we have a very, very exciting episode tonight. This is actually one of the original episodes we planned when we started this podcast, and since we started the podcast, we've been trying to find the perfect guest to do this episode. Here we are with them, with uh, Alex and Mark here. Tonight, we're going to talk about the open gaming license. Now, this is a very, very important document in the tabletop role-playing game space, especially for third-party creators of content for Dungeons & Dragons. Now, to fully understand the open gaming license and how it works, you have to have a very specific mix of knowing how games work and knowing how the law works and also knowing how publishing works. So like I said, we've got two wonderful guests here. Um, Alex Kammer, like we said, returning guest. Alex runs Gamehole Con and Gamehole Publishing and is a partner on True Dungeon. Recently, he, he co-wrote Fae, Land of the Red Wizards with Ed Greenwood and friend of the pod, Alan Patrick. Uh, Mark Greenberg is a former lawyer and currently an author and project manager for Frog God Games and Necromancer Games, and his recent works include Necropolis, Gods of the Lost Lands, and World of the Lost Lands, all for Frog God Games and Necromancer Games. Uh, Alex and Mark did a panel at this year's Gamehole Con on the same subject, on the open gaming license and what you can do with it. And Randall and I were fortunate enough to attend the panel in person and learned a lot. And we want to bring that knowledge to you, the listeners, so that we can answer some of those kind of scary questions for people who, who like me, don't know what this document means. Yeah, I think it's probably worth starting with, like, what is the Open Gaming License? The Open Gaming License is a nice little two-page document that WOTC has published. And it is what it purports to be. I mean, it is it is a license of the ability to use certain intellectual property, which uh, Watsi claims, and we can talk a bit about that later, that third parties can then use for their own products without a license, without a royalty, without any other, other things they have to do other than including the license in their own product. But it enables them to use effectively the mechanics of whatever system that Watsi has published and provided an open gaming license for. They've also included something called a system reference document, which reflects a sizable part of the mechanics, the rules, the spells, the monsters that are available in 5th edition today, before uh, 3 and 3.5, that people can use in their own product and not have to pay any money 
to Watsi, even though they happen to be making money on the product. And that's a wonderful description, Mark. I, I would just add, elaborate just slightly. First, that for in layman's term, it's basically a permission. That's a good way to think of it. And another thing that's really interesting about the OGL SRD, the OGL specifically, is that there are, of course, terms and you can be, become in violation of it and have this license effectively revoked. But what's interesting about it, that your creations that have gone out, even if you're even if you've done something to to run afoul of the of the uh, OGL, it's that content is forever open. So pe- people downstream who pick up your product and see the open gaming license and then create their own content are not somehow their stuff is not nullified by a mistake you made, and that's really a remarkable uh, accomplishment legally. Quite frankly, that's very difficult to do. Uh, and I, I was just mulling on that before we we came on tonight. Anyway, that's a very interesting little sub part of the OGL as well. So I want to make sure that I understand that. So I could lose my right to publish under the OGL because I violate the license. But if I published content, one, because I'm publishing content with the OGL, that necessarily dictates that somebody else could then take that content and publish on top of it. Kind of, I think that's the idea of like copy left, kind of. Yes, yes, essentially, and I'll, yeah, and basically, the, the if someone is uh, takes. Randall's book that was excellent, except for he did X, Y, and Z wrong. Uh, you know, use some probably got into some IP he shouldn't have. Then that new reader looking at the open gaming license, the OGL that's in Randall's book, creates something else. They don't have to remove their product because of any mistakes that Randall made. Okay, that makes good sense. It may make sense to go into a little this a little bit more detail later. I know we're going to do a little bit of history lesson. I think in a minute. But I think it'll make more sense. Alec, what Alex was, said will make a lot more sense when we have a few definitions behind us too, I think, which I think That's we're going to yeah. look at in a bit. Cool. I, I think let's go ahead and go there. So so before we get any further, we should probably give the, the scary disclaimer up front. <laughs> Nothing in this episode is legal advice. Alex is currently a lawyer. Mark was a lawyer once upon a time. But if you need like specific advice on using the open gaming license or anything like go find a lawyer and pay them to help you we're going to do our best to explain a lot of things but don't try and use this episode in court it's, it's not going to go well yeah. nope <laughs> but those amateur podcasters told me that i could do whatever i wanted with the dungeons and dragons ip <laughs> well it, it's on the internet so i'm pretty sure it's true mm, yeah <laughs> that's how that works right yeah my experience so far <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, let's jump in that Wayback Machine. Mark and Alex, uh, how long have you guys been publishing third-party content for D&D? Uh, well, I'll go first, I guess. I guess I started with the most recent iteration of the OGL when uh, they when it was uh, dropped a couple of years after. Actually, I started right before the OGL dropped for 5th edition D&D. So I think my first product uh, came out in 2015, maybe 16, something like that. But I started working on it before that. It was with fifth edition for me. Okay. And how about you, Mark? Yeah. So, um, I have been gaming for a very, very long time. I don't quite go back to the earliest days of D and D, but it's pretty close. And I was a longtime player and was not involved in the industry. And I retired from the practice of law at the age, at the end of 2017 And shortly after I announced, uh, Bill Webb at Frog God called me up and said, how would you like to write for me? And so my very first project for him was World of the Lost Lands, which took 
a couple of years. Wow. So, um, but that was my first project and I've done uh, a couple since. And so for me, everything has effectively been under uh, the current OGL. Okay. So we, so we are dipping back into history that predates all of us, at least being interested in the OGL as a concept. This all started basically right as I was getting into D&D in middle school, basically. Um, so so uh, I was clearly not paying attention. So a lot of this is from like reading books and Wikipedia articles and stuff. So let's start with the original OGL back in the 3.0 days. Now, my understanding is it was announced at Gen Con one year and Necromancer Games was the first company to publish anything under it. And that's that's according to uh, Zach and Bill from Necromancer. So they may they may be wrong. I'm going to take them at their word. But uh, Mark, I can see you snuck a note into the show notes saying that I might be wrong on that one. Well, so. uh, Necromancer was one of the first. I think basically Necromancer and a couple other companies released on the very first day that the 3.0 OGL was effective. Uh, Wizards Amulet. Amulet was their their first product. That's pretty cool. cool. <laughs> like, uh, that, those are bragging rights. Like that. That's a cool thing to be able to to put on your resume or something. <laughs> so this was all the way back in the year two thousand. The open gaming license is published in the third edition pre three five three zero days, and it enables third party content. And three zero didn't have a super long run like i started playing literally a couple months after 3.0 first came out so it's like okay i had these books for about two years and then they're like here new edition i'm like i guess i don't know how old this one is because i was young and wasn't paying attention but in that time there had been a ton of third-party content published for 3.0 D D, and then 3.5 was announced and it kind of caused some some ruffled feathers like uh mark alex do you guys remember any of the fallout around that well i'll just comment just a little bit as where we are in the year 2000 and then go forward and hopefully try to address your comment so keep in mind that the predecessor of uh, wizards of the coast was tsr uh tsr uh if nothing else was well and a lot else but was famous for ip policing they spent a lot of money suing people they were running around, not just uh, writing cease and desist letters. They were actively prosecuting litigation all over the place. So uh, it's it's a, it's a remarkable step. Uh, this is the Peter Atkinson Wizards of the Coast. This is not Hasbro Wizards of the Coast. Took the remarkable step of creating the open gaming license. I think it was a, uh, a an amazing recognition of trying to uh, maintain control of your intellectual property in a setting where things like broadband and the internet is now coming on. So again, think about 2000. We're not talking 2020, uh, the, but we are we're starting to get real digitized digital media, and piracy is at a whole another level uh, and a very difficult thing to contain. So to go from an IP policing stance to a creativity tolerance stance, which the OGL is, is remarkable. So Mark, if you have some more comments on that, I uh, especially with what Tyler was was asking about with the 3.5. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, that's exactly right, Alex. I mean, I think it was, uh, it's usually attributed to Ryan Dancy, who was a, wow. um, a, uh, I think it was vice president over there who sort of dreamt this up. But it is a remarkable option that they chose, very similar, obviously, to a lot of open source software type programs out there, Linux, Apache, MIT, lots of things like that, that are, are sort of similar types of concepts. 
that they decided to use. And it was, uh, I, I was not there at the time. My guess is it probably was a pretty controversial and risky move to decide to open up your intellectual property. But obviously, in the end, it was very successful. And like you, you call out these, at this point in time, what we consider very successful open source licenses, but it's probably worth considering. Again, back in 2000, a lot of major industry players weren't sure about the future of open source. The idea of like an open source operating system, uh, you know, you had BSD at that point. Uh, it wasn't hugely adopted. Sun was was locking people in. Yeah, th- this open source, especially this copyleft license, just wasn't something a lot of folks were engaging with in the software industry let alone come back to like, now we're talking about creative content. It's just an interesting concept. If you take a moment and think about it, that you're releasing the, 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 the very material that you're creating with the hope at least. And, and I would, I would call it the understanding that uh, the rising tide will lift all boats, that this is good to have it out there. It's good to have people interacting with our intellectual property and to create with it. Because then we have we're, we have more relevancy in the commercial space instead of a, a a licensure kind of a true licensure kind of position where you're charging percentages and so on, where you are just now in a straight up comp, in a straight competition with with uh, other developers if it's software or tabletop gaming. Um, so I yeah that's why in 2000 it was really quite a thing. Um, now we have there's tons of open source uh, tabletop stuff as well. They're you know free league when they opened the doors they were open source uh and uh so that's it's uh it's it really did change the world for for us in, in tabletop gaming well and also worth calling out ed game Holcon this year right money cook games announced uh the cypher system homing open license so even though it was uh inherently seen as a risk at the time it ultimately proved to be kind of necessary because of the way that ip especially when we're talking about tabletop games and dungeons and dragons are just constantly built upon and used in a way and it sounds like what you guys are saying is that essentially like uh wizards of the coast didn't want to have to be play whack-a-mole lawsuit (laughs) with all of the people that were making that were inevitably going to make fan creations approved or not especially in the days of you know the internet and piracy and stuff like that so this was sort of a good compromise so like it's not only beneficial the open gaming license is not only beneficial to the players and third-party publishers but ultimately it was a pretty good decision for wizards of the coast to do something like this yeah and i don't know what the thinking was i you know i've never actually sat down with somebody who was at the table and asked but you know one of the benefits obviously at the time was you know for a company that had just bought a very troubled um tsr um it meant that they were able to rely upon other third parties to produce the adventures and other books that would then feed into the sale of their own books. So they were not reliant upon just the people at Watsi to develop product for their customers, which would, in their view, I assume, hopefully, hopefully build up the customer base, which is exactly what happened. Now, whether that was the intention or whether that's just the happy circumstance um, I'd love to actually ask somebody who was around at the time and having those discussions. Hopefully someday we'll uh, figure out who that is and get them on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> someday. Someday. So so back to the timeline a little bit. 3.0 lasts like two, three years before 3.5 comes out. And at this point, there's a bunch of small publishers 
publishing 3.0 content under the open gaming license. Like I remember looking at stuff on the shelf and being like, all of this says it's compatible. Why is none of this from Wizards of the Coast? And like, again, I was 13, 14, had no idea what I was looking at. But yeah, like there, I remember great ideas, like just big books of monsters, books of familiars, adventures, like all this stuff from companies that mostly no longer exist, unfortunately. And as soon as 3.5 is announced, all of those books are kind of obsolete. And like they're they're on the shelves already in game stores like they're in transit to game stores they're being printed like it's it's you can't go back and update those books because they are physical books the move to three five basically put a bunch of those publishers out of business because they had all of this inventory that no one wanted to buy because it was for rules that were no longer being supported and my understanding is somewhere around this time we also get open gaming license version 1.0 a and I haven't been able to identify exactly what's different between the two. So um, Alex and Mark, can either of you explain that one to me? <laughs> I'm getting I, shaking heads. Yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be frank. I, I don't know the difference. I think that the, um, you know, I've had the chance to speak to Peter Atkinson about, you know, the the, the, the shift from 3.0 to 3.5. And if there was any sort of competition-based motive for doing so, he certainly didn't mention that. I, I think it was all mechanical and and, uh, and rules-driven. There were some inherent problems with 3.0 they wanted to fix, and the, hence 3.5 instead of calling it, you know, something entirely different. But uh, I, I don't know. I haven't, you know, I was actually thinking about that, too, that I probably, as a good guest on your show, should have gone back and read every one of the <laughs> previous OGLs and been prepared to point out which one's different. So I'm sorry I can't. I put it into a text diff and I couldn't figure it out. So like, I'm... yeah, I, I, I had, uh, I think I looked at it at one point. I mean, it, the, the version even in use today still says copyright 2000. So, and again, we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit, but the distinction between the OGL and the SRD, the OGL is just a license. It's just a two pager. And I think while there may have been some tweaks nothing material really has changed from the version that was used originally with with 3.0. It's the SRD, the system reference document, that changes each time they come up with a new version or 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 edition or sub-edition that uh that that requires new rules. But I don't think anything material changed, but I I could be wrong. I've I've not seen a version 1.0A of the OGL that I've I realized it was different. I, I bet you're I bet you're right. I bet you're right, Mark. I bet it was all SRD. I'm not sure if we explicitly said this earlier. I think we definitely alluded to it. The idea though is that the open gaming license basically says you can use everything in the SRD and nothing else. That's not- I believe you can reference things, right? You can refer you can reference other stuff that's copyrighted, but you can't go into detail on the stuff. So like you could mention a spell that's not in the system reference document, but you can't like explain what the spell does. I believe that's I could be wrong about that. It, it's it's um it's probably worth having a full sort of explanation of what the OGL and the SRD is before we really go into that. I don't know if you guys want to get do that now or if you want to finish the history, but but it, it is somewhat complicated what you can and cannot use. Mm. Well, well, we can jump in ahead. Yeah, we could. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah, we'll, we'll circle back later. to that. Yeah, we'll do that later. <laughs> Uh, all right. Okay, so we've talked about the SRD during the 3035 area. Um there was also this thing called the D20 system trademark license, like it 
uh, it's not really relevant, honestly. Uh, it was confusing. It was annoying. It led to heartburn and it went away. 3 5 era ends. Wizards of the Coast publishes 4th edition. 4th edition is not published with an SRD under the open gaming license. Instead, for 4th edition, we get this thing called the game system license. There were, you know, negative opinions about the game system license. The third party support for 4th edition was a lot smaller, partially because of the game system license. And like, this is the era where like a lot of people were looking away from D&D. Pathfinder got big under the open gaming license because the open gaming license still exists. You can still publish stuff for 3.0 and 3.5 under the open gaming license. So like 4E was doing its thing. People who didn't like 4E were going a different direction. Mark and Alex, do you guys understand the game system license at all? Well, I just I, I'll comment briefly on that. I don't know the details because you're you're right. It was very well. I, I almost said loathe, but that's probably a little too strong. It wasn't well <laughs> received, and you know, given given what it was following, the open game license, the OGL, uh, that you know, how could it be anything else? And let's not. And I, I'm not going to skip to the end here, but let's let's not ignore the elephant in the room. The reason why this is such a big subject and why people are so interested in this, that there is very strong indications that the next edition of D&D, 6E or 1D or D or whatever it's going to be called, will not have an open game license. That's very, I think that's very possible. And I think it's probably even stronger than that, but we'll just leave it at that. So that's why the this examination of what happened to D&D uh, under fourth edition uh, is so important and interesting to us now, all of a sudden this a year ago, this was not on anyone's radar, but it certainly is now because we are, we're seeing to some extent history repeating itself. Uh, and it's going to be fascinating what happens with it all. Um, but Mark, go ahead. You were ready to, to comment on that subject. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I think the issues with the game system license were a number. It, it's, it's longer. It's much more complicated the key issues, I think, for most of the third-party publishers were boiled around down to a couple of major issues. One was, unlike the OGL, which is irrevocable, you know, once you use it and you make a product with it, the license is there, and and they, you know, Watsi can't change it. In the fourth edition uh, game system license they could change that license at will. They were not obligated to notify anybody that they had changed it. Either was actually an obligation on the part of third-party publishers to keep track of changes. You'd have to like, presumably go onto Watsi's website and check every day to see if your license had changed. And if it did, you had to recomply with whatever they had changed. As a business matter, that's not possible for somebody to comply with. <laughs> no kidding. It, it also had a provision, and this is one where I, I go back to my old law days. I know exactly where it came from. It came from some lawyer, just like me, who thought they were being you know, a little clever and put a provision in that basically said um, that in the event that you know, Watsi has to sue you because they think you haven't complied, you have to pay Watsi's legal fees. Unbelievable. And that was also something that people felt very strongly uh, about. And in addition to that, the it also did not include the rules. It was much harder to use 
as a third-party publisher, just as a matter of usability. I have to assume that that some of this was a a sense within Watsi that perhaps the the OGL had gotten too widely used, that uh, it, maybe they'd lost control of their of their product, and that this was an effort to gain more control. Another example for like the OGL is you just use it. And you just have to make sure that you include the license at the back of your product. And that's all you have to do. And the license is deemed accepted. For the uh, the game system license, if I recall correctly, you actually had to like a, send a postcard or something back to Watsi before you could actually publish anything. And there was some time period you had to wait after you had done that before you could publish. Again, it made a lot of sense if you were trying to license something to two or three people. It did not make a lot of sense as an open type license where, you know, tens or dozens of companies were going to potentially use it. So that's that's why it really did not work. And um, you know, when when fifth edition came out, I don't you know, I, I suspect they didn't even think about trying to use it again. It sounds like for good reason. Yeah, it sounds like it was a clear mistake on Wizards of the Coast part, and they realized that, hey, that didn't exactly work out that well for us, and a bunch of people jumped ship to Pathfinder. Let's not do that. You'd think they'd learn their lesson, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> well I guess- you know, I, I think you've, you've got to look at it as, you know, you know, do you view the widespread use of your IP as something you want or think you need? Yeah. You, know, you might come to the conclusion that when you're at a certain level of success... You'd like people to only buy your own product and not to be diluting it, buying somebody else's. So I think I think there's, you know, this is a business, right? And they've got to make a rational business decision as to where they think they're going to maximize their revenues. And you know, I think in hindsight, it was clearly a mistake at the time. I, I, I'll give a bit of a break to the people at the time. They didn't know what they were necessarily upsetting when they when they made that decision. Well, this is also coming off the the three point five eras. We've all commonly called it the splat era. There was so much stuff, <laughs> and a lot of it was not good. I mean, let's be honest. The, yeah. uh, the a lot yeah. of the third party published material was just not very good. Some of it was very good. I'm, I'm not throwing stones, but I mean, I think we all like recognize that there was a lot of bad stuff that was being produced. Under the D and D, even though it was not called Dungeon Dragons, because that's part of which is explicitly we'll get to that, which you can can't say, but uh, it was all you know uh, uh, associated with Dungeons and Dragons, which was bad. So as far as what what goes into a decision then to um, go from the OGL to the uh, to to that the system they used for Fourth Edition, um, philosophically, I think you have to get to the spot where you believe somehow that. Uh, you're actually losing revenue to third-party producers. Um, I don't. I don't think that's ever been the case. Personally, I think if anyone were going to take a deep dive uh, through the numbers, could prove that. Uh, that uh, and that uh, if there are slumping sales of a an edition or a book, it probably has something more to do with the quality of the edition of the book rather than you know a third-party publisher taking money out of wizard's pocket um but that again we're jumping to the end of this concluded discussion and uh we can circle back on that maybe if we have time at the end but i know we're we can only speculate at this point like what their thought process was but if it wasn't based on revenue is it possible that yeah like you were saying that maybe they just didn't want to be associated with low quality content i know the book of erotic fantasy 
caused quite a bit of a scandal in the D&D community when it came out. Yep. And so maybe Wizards of the Coast made a decision that like, hey, we may not be losing revenue per se to these third-party publishers, but the stuff that is being published under our umbrella and is associated with RIP is damaging the brand. Yeah, we've lost the ability to protect our image, and so we can capture that. Yeah. That that definitely is is a risk when you when you go with the open source option, and uh, yeah, I, I don't remember exactly when the book of erotic fantasy came out, how how far toward the end of of this era, but certainly I'm sure that had an effect, um, and and that isn't you know you know I'm sure people had long term memories of the satanic panic and other issues. While D and D was popular at the time, it was not popular the way it has been in recent years and you know as a business matter you know you don't want to lose a lot of business because you become associated with the product and there is a risk there is a risk when you open it up well and so for the 40 40 game system license you also had to pay to have access to the license right like you paid a fee to publish for the game system I'm not license? Sure on that one actually huh. um I don't remember um I don't think I saw anything about it when I was researching it but like the barrier of having to send that postcard to Watsi to, to let them know. And then all of the other stuff like that does create a financial barrier. Plus the absolutely insane risk of like Watsi could choose to sue me for nothing. And I would have to pay them to do that. Even if, even if the, the upfront cost was $0 like that, that's a sort of Damocles like I absolutely not no. Yeah. So just potential <laughs> negative money hanging over your zero investment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, uh, I I can't imagine like small time creators like it exists now would ever take the yeah. game game system li- <laughs> the game system license. It's like I'm just a single person in my room. I can't afford uh-huh. to pay Watsi legal. Well, <laughs> it's a ridiculous idea to think that anybody would engage with that in today's climate of how like any of these things run. Like it's such an alien mm-hmm. idea. Which again, I suppose I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> uh, as as someone who spends a lot of time reading uh, confusing and sometimes archaic rule systems to look for abuse cases and problems, the idea that Watsi could sue me and make me pay for it stands out as an abuse case and a problem, pretty obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, let's move on from the 4E days and the game system license. And... Uh, Closer to today, uh, we're we're roughly eight years out from the original release of 5th edition. 5e was out for about two years before we got the 5th edition SRD published under Open Gaming License 1.0a. So this is the same version of the Open Gaming License that was used for 3.5, same version that Pathfinder is based on. So like this document's been out in the world at this point for probably 10 plus years at that point i want to say i can't think of any major i can't think of any litigation that's happened around it of any kind uh so like this this is a document that people know that they can safely publish under and like paizo is still around doing very well publishing great stuff all under the open gaming license and they're continuing to do so fifth edition comes out there's that two-year gap, and then we finally get the 5e SRD. And six years later, we're in this wonderful world where there's some 
absolutely fantastic third-party creators creating some really, really great content. Frog God slash Necromancer, our friends at Cobalt Press, Hit Point Press, uh, that I I could not list every single company I know the name of. I would uh, fall over and die of old age. There are a lot of them, and they're a lot of times very, very good. There's also the small-time publishers like doing all these things. Um, but it's all essentially the same rules that have been around since three five, where like you publish it, and uh, Randall, I think you used the term copy left. So like, I have published this; people can use it. Um, that was a very interesting time when fifth edition first <laughs> dropped, and there was no SRD. I was asked all the time, "What is the effect of having the OGL still out there?" And Mark, you probably were too, but no SRD uh, can. What does it mean? Uh, and this gets back to if you, uh, Tyler and Randall, if you remember our talk when we we're talking about more of the copyright basics, that one of the black letter uh, touchstone principles of copyright law is that you cannot copyright game mechanics. So if you'll recall, uh, before the uh, SRD was released, there was stuff published for fifth edition fantasy, as it was called. I remember Goodman Games did that. They right away uh, within the player's handbook had hit game stores. They had a couple of modules, softbound modules that were in game stores. And, uh, and I think they were absolutely correct in the law, their interpretation. It looked like a risk at the time, but I didn't believe so. If, as long as you were uh, staying away from uh, previously known pieces of declared IP in previous iterations of the SRD and were using merely fifth edition mechanics, uh, and telling your own stories and telling your own lore, you absolutely could do so. And there was not a whisper uh, from uh, from Watsi. And I think that actually helped because I remember this all going on because this was happening at GameholeCon uh, in the early days. We started in 2013 and it was D&D Next at that point. And Chris Perkins was one of our first guests uh, and he came to GameholeCon 1 and it came, it came to almost all of them since. And we would lean on him hard about it, you know, about, you know, when you were releasing an SRD and he would kind of uh, leak secrets about what was coming. And I remember uh, <laughs> he would give a seminar and this is back in the days when we we're in a little hotel and there are, you know, 30 people in the room. And one of the guys is live tweeting Chris Perkins's comments and EN World's picking it up. Right. Because this is there's no news about any of this from any other source. Uh, and so we knew that an OGL was I mean, the SRD was coming. Uh, before it actually hit, but uh, it, it was pretty pretty neat to see all that because they were just, I think they're just recognizing uh, the reality of the situation was going to happen anyway. That that Goodman Games has already put a put a flagpole in the ground. People were buying it. It was good stuff, and they were within the legal rights. Um, Mark, do you have any comment on that? Am I anyway wrong on uh, any of those comments? No, I, 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 Alex, as usual, you're exactly right. No, that's well, that, that is that, that's that is um, <laughs> uh, the. Um, as Alex said, you know, in, in, I probably don't want to try to get everybody to have a, a law degree in copyright law here, but um, you know, you cannot copyright math, and and effectively, that's what a game mechanic is. It's just math, and you cannot copyright that. And so, if you're if you're careful, and it does involve some care, and you're not using something that is copyrightable that might be owned by Watsi. You can use their game system. Um, you know, you'd want to avoid matching any of the language they use. You might want to avoid using any monsters that they have identified and just create your own. You know, you'd have to 
take some care with the spells and how you're handling those, but you can manage it. It's, it's, it's a little cumbersome. And if you're not careful, you can make a mistake that can get you in trouble. So the beauty of when the SRD finally did come out was that you knew that if you appended the OGL and that SRD at the end of your, your, your product or incorporating the SRD at the end of your product, you didn't have to worry about all those things. So in that sense, it makes it easier and it enables you to use certain things confidently and not have to worry about somebody coming down on you. But you can you can find a way to work around it. And I'm, you know, we can talk about this in a bit, but I'm sure people will probably do the same to some extent with whether it's 5.5 or whatever we want to call it. So I, I want to ask the question. I hear this idea of like, you know, you'll you will win eventually. You will be within your legal rights. But I guess I'm going to call it, it, it still isn't without risk, even if you have 100% certainty that it's going to work out your way, right? Uh, the way the American legal system, as I understand it, works, if you think I violated your rights, and I think that I have not, and you sue me for it, unless the court finds that the case was just absolutely ridiculous, I'm still going to have to pay my legal fees to find out that I was right all along. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, as as one of my law professors back in law school said, the answer to the question, can somebody sue over that, is always yes. You can always bring a lawsuit. The only question is how quickly it gets dismissed. And <laughs> if you've got somebody, on, on the one hand, who has billions of dollars in revenue, and you don't... You know, yeah, it it, it is. You know, the, the question is, to what extent do you want to take that risk? I mean, you know, um, Joe Goodman's real smart, and I'm sure he was able to sit down and 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 was had a very high degree of confidence that he was going to be able to uh, to manage this. And frankly, you know, the other aspect of this is is that you know, if you're having communications behind the scenes, which there might be, or people are talking, um, you know, yes, there are frivolous lawsuits in this industry. But there are ways to try to avoid that happening. So, but but yeah, that is certainly a reality that not everybody wants to deal with litigation. They want to write games. Well, if I can just uh, so the um, it's true. I, as a trial lawyer, um, I, I'm I, I litigate for a living. That's how I feed the cat, as they say. Um, but one <laughs> a party that's out there that does not engage in frivolous litigations is Wizards of the Coast. Uh, they they have the as far as I know the only <clears throat> active litigation they have right now that isn't remotely tabletop is dealing with the knuckleheads at TSR who should be sued to the point they're a grease spot right for what they've done um, they're they've been violative of so many things across the landscape and they're I think that's you know I don't think there's anyone who doesn't look at that uh, as as anything but righteous litigation uh, other than that they really don't sue anyone and they've had there have been plenty of instances where they could you also have to keep in mind that wizards is uh part of hasbro multinational uh when they start picking on small producers that has its own consequences that are beyond financial um you know so they, they have to be very careful uh in terms of their image when it comes to picking their battles i mean you can see they're almost goaded into suing new tsr as we call them they really didn't want to do it, but they kept, new TSR kept doing, how about now? How about now? How about now? And so they finally had to do it. And so, I, so, but I understand, I understand what you're saying when it comes to 
uh, being a small producer and thinking, geez, do I want to take this risk? But uh, given the actual landscape, this is we're not dealing with um, old TSR who absolutely would if you were, <laughs> you know, they're, the, the way they sued people, you know, some some person produces a pamphlet in Indiana and they're just all over that poor guy. Right. You know, that's just not. It's like, not I made ten of them. How do you even find this? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my understanding is uh, TSR's uh, litigious nature was one of the things that led to their financial downfall. But at some point, we need to see if we can get Ben Riggs on here to explain that one to us. Uh, well, hey, so uh, real quick before we proceed, let's just take a quick ad break, uh, you know, feed the cat. And then, uh, yeah, we'll we'll get right back into it. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the specifics of the open gaming license and like how we can actually go about using it. Um, I imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast are just players and um, like you might enjoy third party content and like this, this subject is very important for those third party creators. If you are a third party creator, you probably know a lot of this stuff or hopefully you do. Um, but I don't, so I'm going to try and learn a bunch of things from from our guests. So we've talked about the open gaming license and how it provides a framework to publish your own content, and then you basically stick the open gaming license at the back, and it creates this thing called open game content. Can you guys explain to me what exactly that means? Sure, I'll give it. I'll, I'll give. I'll give it a crack. <laughs> and it is worth noting that there is this is legal language. And there is some ambiguity, and there are some people who do have slightly different interpretations of at some of the the margins. So, uh, as I think was mentioned earlier, if you are a third party publisher and you actually have questions or issues, uh, do not rely on this podcast as much as I love everybody on here. Go talk to a lawyer. So, anyway, with with that caveat, under the the open game license, there are two types of material that they describe. One of them is called open game content, and the other is product identity. And what it basically says in the license is that whatever is open game um, content, anybody who complies with the obligation to attach the OGL to the end of their, their product can freely use it without a royalty, without paying any money, and it's irrevocable. Nobody can show up to you later and say, you need to recall all of those books, as long as you stick to the open game content. You can also have something called product identity, which you can't. Product identity means the stuff that is mine and mine alone, and I'm not going to let somebody else use it. So what WOTC has done to start the ball rolling is they have basically said that essentially whatever is in the system reference document is open game content. Anybody can use it just the same way that you could use open source software for whatever purpose you want, so long as you attach the license and comply with some of the other relatively innocuous obligations. They have also identified certain things that are product identity of Watsi that you cannot use. One of them, for example, is the term Dungeons and Dragons. And so that's why you will see that whoever is doing the third-party publishing 
is not going to use the term Dungeons and Dragons or Dungeon Master or infamously certain types of monsters that um, Watsi claims ownership over, uh, such as the Beholder, the Mind Flayer, um, and and uh, the like. So those are things that they say, no, these are ours, and they're only ours. You can't use them. That's not open game content. Uh, there is some debate over whether or not, as a matter of law, that is true. However, if you accept the license, it doesn't matter what the law says anymore about copyright. You have accepted their terms, and you have agreed not to use that, even if you might have been able to in the absence of the license. Now, what's sort of cool about the open game license, though, is, is that it doesn't stop with Watsi. It keeps going, and it goes to the next person who use it, uses it, and then somebody can use that. So, for example, um, some of the uh, Frog God and Necromancer books, uh, some of the, the, the monster books they have created, specifically say that some of the monsters, if not all of the monsters in the book, uh, it does vary because they may, ha- they may have their own copyright limitations, but many of the monsters in those books are open source, are, are open game content, which means if I want to write my own adventure, and I'm not doing it with Frog God, I'm doing it for my own company or just on my own, and I see that, that Frog God created this cool monster that I want to use, and they've identified it as open game content, I can use it just the same way I can use the Watsi or the system reference document it, it feeds on itself. You can keep using it on and on. Now, you don't have to declare anything open game content. If you produce a product and you want, to, you want people to use some of the stuff that you've created, what you do is at the end of your book where you have the, the, um, the OGL, right before the OGL, you specify, and, and if you go to most third-party publishers, um, who are using this, you can actually see how they do it. They will describe, hey, in my book, this is the stuff that's open uh, game content, and this is the stuff that's product identity. And that way you know what you can use and what you can't. And again, whether they would have a right under the law to protect the product identity, if you accept the license, you do accept those terms. So. The beauty of all of this and what has permitted so much flourishing of the third-party publishers that are out there is their ability to take not just Watsi's open game content and Cobalt Press's open game content and Frog Gods and everybody else's open game content and use it in your own product, royalty-free, and you can charge whatever you want, and you don't have to pay anybody for it. What is uh, that's really well said, Mark. Uh, I appreciate your doing so. The uh, what is so interesting about it is the the, the last points you made, uh, and that is that regardless of what the what what smartass legal uh, things you can come up with, which I'm about to give you a few. Once you've opted in, you have you are now bound by the terms of the of the OGL, and that really is a, a neat way to do it. They say here's the here's what we're proposing. Here's a real easy way to use a bunch of our stuff, um, 
and and here, you know, I I think I'm pretty savvy when it comes to intellectual property and and and, and navigating the stuff. I absolutely have availed myself of the OGL with all my publishing uh, because it's just too much of a minefield otherwise, and too stressful, quite frankly. But let's just say you wanted to. When the stuff that they describe as open game content, and they're 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 they say, well, you can use this. Well, you could use it anyway. They're they're giving you they're granting you permission for something they can't keep you from using in the first place. Again, the math the mechanics of their game. Um, so you can, if you were so inclined, issue the OGL and go produce fifth edition looking stuff anyway. Uh, and then when it comes to some of the uh, uh, the uh, product in any things they specifically enumerate. I think it's a very interesting question whether or not <clears throat> those, if really tested in court, whether or not they have a claim, uh, if they have really have the rights to keep people from using those. For example, Mindflayer one is particularly interesting because uh, I think it's pretty well settled in copyright law that you can't uh, copyright protections do not apply to one word things like the holder. That's something you can't copyright. Really? Yeah. You could trademark it, but not copyright. So then with Mindflare, again, two words, very difficult. I don't think you can get copyright protection. You have before, uh, well before there's an Alitha or Mindflare, there were these octopus head creatures that were running around in, in Cthulhu. You know, so this is why we're, you know, I, I wrote a uh, module, my first actual one was called uh, Brain Gorger's Appetite, which was a obviously a mind flayer kind of thing. Um, and could I have been sued for that? Yeah. But does Watsi ever want to have that fight? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They're never going to sue someone for fooling around with a mind flayer because unless it's, unless it's huge dollars, um, and this obviously wasn't. Because there's that, I think that path is fraught with peril for them. Because I, I think the legal underpinnings are not sound. Um, but that's just me being a smartass, and I just want to point that out. Mark is absolutely right when it comes to the, the the open gaming license. And once you have, once you start using it, once you dip your toes in the pool and use it, you're in. All that kind of camera nonsense is is behind you. So if you publish a product under the open gaming license, are you then? bound to use the open gaming license for all future similar products or could i be like this adventure is ogl i'm gonna go a little crazy and not use the ogl for my next one yeah no that, that, that that's allowed that, yeah that's exactly right i mean i mean i mean you know it's a product by product determination uh, just the same way that that a company is you know you know it may be that that somebody is going to produce i'm going to produce a uh venture for 5e and then i'm going to do another one for Pathfinder 2, and then I'm going to do another one for Call of Cthulhu or whatever, you know, all of which have their own versions effectively of, of, of this in place. It, that's all fine. And you can pick, or, or you can just say, I'm going to create my own thing. And, but then you need to make sure that you're comfortable that you're not, you know, infringing upon the intellectual property in a way that is going to attract anybody's attention. I would say that there's a lot of debate over what to what extent the SRD is really something that Watsi can claim an intellectual property right over. Is it really copyrightable? Again, mechanics are not copyrightable. You can't copyright increasing or decreasing armor class. You can't copyright math. 
But what you can copyright are the way you phrase things and language um, more than a few words. And so, you know, uh, there is a debate over, you know, what about, you know, okay, I, I can create a, a monster uh, called a, uh, an ogre. But can I use the ogre exactly the way it is created in the monster manual or in the SRD if, I don't, if I'm not using the SRD? What about uh, Featherfall or um, you know, any number of other spells? The description of the spell, the text, that may be copyrightable. Um, it depends. And so to the extent that you're relying upon those types of things, using the OGL means you don't have to worry about the fact that I've put a fly spell and it uses the exact same stats and the same descriptions as the one in the player's handbook. Uh, I don't have to stress about, about that. But if you wanted to, you can try to avoid all of that and skip out on using the OGL. But there is some debate, and you'll get different lawyers who will say, yes, it's copyrightable, and other lawyers will say, no, it's not. A, a great, I think, a, a real interesting one to look at are stat blocks. You know, are those copyrightable? Uh, and I think most people looking at purely the stat blocks, the, the numbers, uh, even the layout, the layout's mechanical in its own nature. I think those, so largely, I think most people would agree that stat blocks are not copyrightable. However, the descriptions found in stat blocks where they describe backstory, um, biology, culture, ecology, whatever, all that stuff. Well, that's a creative work. You're telling a story there. That's copyrightable. It becomes interesting, and this is the reason I brought this up, because Mark brought up the subject of an ogre. Well, an ogre, obviously, is something that's existed far before D&D was ever conceived of. So when you start delving into uh, mythology or literature, that becomes even more difficult, quite frankly, impossible to start asserting copyright over. If you're, that's why, uh, you know, the uh, carrion crawler would be, is a better example. That's something that was truly created, you know, by, or, or the Boulay or something like that, that was created by the, the original T TSR guys uh, and then going forward. Those are, I think, you have a better chance of having those, uh, having copyright protections afforded to those. Um, so anyway, that was just by way of illustration. The, but that all can be avoided if you step into the OGL uh, for better or for worse. Uh, but, I, but I think there's a lot of gray area. And the reason I want to bring this up is that um, I think people don't appreciate that. Um, but for Watsi saying you could do this, you can do this. That's not true. That's not at, at, at heart true. They are they're trying to they've picked a path to make it easy for them and thereby often easier for us. There's no question about that, but they're and I and I understand it. So they're not being sinister about it. I don't think they're being evil or anything like that. But they're also not being exactly forthcoming and say, "Hey, folks, you can go do this. You can use the fifth edition mechanics. You absolutely can. We have. There's nothing we can do to stop you. No one's ever said that, but it does not make it any less true." Thank you so much for joining us for part one: history and fundamentals of D and D open gaming license and SRD. The spicy stuff comes tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll be discussing speculation and implications of the past on the future of one D and D.